Chapter 10 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Don Pacifico, Death of Sir Robert Peel. The Don Pacifico question was the occasion of a great debate in the House of Commons. Lord Palmerston and Mr. Gladstone divided the honors of the debate between them. It was the greatest speech Lord Palmerston had ever made up to that time. It was probably the greatest speech Mr. Gladstone had made up to that time. What was it all about? Who was Don Pacifico? Such a question might fairly be asked even by a well-read young man of the present day. Don Pacifico figured in the politics of that day very much as Monsieur Jecker did at the time of the French intervention in Mexico. Don Pacifico was the comet of a season. His claims went very near to bringing on European war, and they certainly caused for a time a feeling of estrangement and even anger between England and France. Don Pacifico was a Jew of Portuguese extraction, but he was born in Gibraltar and was therefore a subject of the Queen. He was living in Athens, and in 1847 his house was attacked and plundered by an Athenian mob. The wrath of the mob was inflamed because Don Pacifico was a Jew, and the Greek government had made an order that the familiar celebration of Easter by the burning of an effigy of Judas Iscariot should not be allowed to take place any more. The mob got angry and wrecked their wrath on Don Pacifico's house. Don Pacifico made a claim against the Greek government for compensation, estimating his losses at more than 30,000 pounds sterling. He did not make any appeal to the Greek law courts, but when his demand was refused, addressed himself directly to the Foreign Office in London. The Foreign Office had at that time various complaints, more or less important, against the Greek government. No doubt the Greek authorities had been somewhat careless and free, but it is right to say that they showed themselves perfectly willing to come to any reasonable understanding with England. Still, they seem to have been quite staggered by the demand of more than 30,000 pounds for the destruction of household property in Don Pacifico's modest little dwelling. An English historian says that Don Pacifico charged in his bill one hundred and fifty pounds sterling for a bedstead, thirty pounds for the sheets of the bed, twenty-five pounds for two coverlets, and ten pounds for a pillowcase, and the writer adds that Cleopatra might have been contented with bed furniture so luxurious as Don Pacifico represented himself to have in his common use. The Greek government had no faith in the costly bedstead and the expensive sheets and coverlets. They declined to pay, and the don, as I have said, did not seek his remedy in any court of law. Lord Palmerston, 
happened to be in one of his bumptious moods, and he got it into his head that the French minister in Athens was privately urging the Greek government to resist all the English claims. So Lord Palmerston lumped up the whole claims into one national demand and insisted that Greece must pay up the money within a short, definite time. The Greek government still hung back, and the British fleet was ordered to Piraeus, where he seized all the Greek vessels belonging to the government and to private merchants which were found in the harbor. This high-handed course gave great offense not alone to Greece, which would have been a matter of little importance, great powers do not generally care much about the feelings of small states, but to France and to Russia. France and Russia were powers joined with England in the treaty drawn up for the protection of the independence of Greece. The Russian government wrote an angry and indeed a furious remonstrance. The French government withdrew for a time their ambassador from London. All Europe was thrown into alarm, and indeed it was only the trumpery nature of the whole dispute which rendered it impossible that rational nations could take up arms about it, that averted a calamitous war. After a while, the whole dispute was quietly settled. Don Pacifico was lucky enough to get about one-thirtieth of his demand, and no doubt was well able to restock his house with very decent bed furniture. In the meantime, however, the attention of Parliament and the public in England was directed to the serious nature of the course which Lord Palmerston had taken. Lord Stanley in the House of Lords moved what was practically a vote of censure on the government, and he carried it by a majority of 37. For this, of course, Lord Palmerston did not care three straws. The peers might amuse themselves every night of their lives if they liked, by voting a censure on the existing government of the country, and the government would go on just as if nothing had happened. But it was quite a different thing with the House of Commons, and Lord Palmerston very well knew that his conduct with regard to Greece was strongly condemned by some of the most powerful men in the representative chamber. He acted with his usual skill and dexterity, he did not put up a pledged follower of himself or his government to vindicate the policy pursued in Greece. He got an independent liberal, as the phrase goes, the late Mr. Roebuck, to propose a motion vindicating the action of the government. Mr. Roebuck was a man of great ability but eccentric, with, in fact, a good deal of the crank about him. He had never attached himself to any government or ministerial party, and he had often attacked and denounced the policy of Lord Palmerston. But there was a strong dash of what we should now call the jingo in him, and he had rather a liking for high-handed assertion of England's power. On the 24th of June, 1850, Mr. Roebuck proposed to the House of Commons a resolution declaring that the general foreign policy of the government was calculated to maintain the honor and dignity of the country 
and in times of unexampled difficulty to preserve peace between England and the various nations of the world. The resolution was ingeniously worded. It gives the mere Greek question the go-by and talks only of the general policy of Lord Palmerston's government. The principal interest of the debate for us now turns upon the speeches of Lord Palmerston and Mr. Gladstone. Sir Robert Peel made his last speech in that great debate, but the speech was memorable mainly because it was his last. But Palmerston lifted himself in his speech to a higher position than he had ever occupied before. It was not a speech of great eloquence in the oratorical sense, but it was a masterpiece of dexterity and plausibility. It appealed to every prejudice which could possibly affect the mind of the ordinary Briton. He insisted that the foreign policy of the government had been ruled by the principle which inspired the policy of ancient Rome, and by virtue of which a subject of that great empire could hold himself free from indignity by simply saying, Civis Romanus sum. The question fetched the house, if we may use such a modern colloquialism. It probably secured to Palmerston his victory of 46, with which the debate concluded. The whole speech occupied five hours in delivery, and Lord Palmerston had not a single note to assist him. Yet Mr. Gladstone's magnificent reply told upon the house, highly strung as it was to impassioned self-admiration by Palmerston's rousing appeals. It was a great position for Mr. Gladstone to hold when in such a debate he had to maintain the principle of public and private justice against so skilled, so plausible, and I must add, so unscrupulous an antagonist as Lord Palmerston. Gladstone's was both an argument and an eloquence by far the finer speech of the two. It was a speech which glorified for states as well as for individuals the principle of Christian dealing, of self-restraint, of moderation with the weak, of calm consideration before a harsh decision had been put in force. The speech, indeed, made the first full revelation of Mr. Gladstone's character as a statesman. It showed that, above all things, he was the apostle of principle in political as well as in private life. It was nothing to him that a policy might be dazzling, that it might be calculated to spread abroad the influence of England, that it might make foreign nations envious and English people elate with self-glorification. What Mr. Gladstone asked was that the policy should be just, that it should be a policy of morality and of Christianity. John Stuart Mill was said to have reconciled political economy with humanity. Gladstone endeavored always to reconcile politics with religion. Let us recognize, he said, closing his speech, and recognize with frankness the equality of the weak with the strong, the principles of brotherhood amongst nations and of their sacred independence. When we are asking for the maintenance of the rights which belong to our fellow subjects resident in Greece, 
let us do as we would be done by, and let us pay all that respect to a feeble state and to the infancy of free institutions which we should desire and should exact from others toward their maturity and their strength. Let us refrain from all gratuitous and arbitrary meddling in the internal concerns of other states, even as we should resent the same interference if it were attempted to be practiced toward ourselves. If the noble lord has indeed acted on these principles, let the government to which he belongs have your verdict in its favor. But if he has departed from them as I contend, and as I humbly think and urge upon you that it has been too amply proved, then the House of Commons must not shrink from the performance of its duty under whatever expectations of momentary obloquy or reproach, because we shall have done what is right. We shall enjoy the peace of our own consciences and receive, whether a little sooner or a little later, the approval of the public voice for having entered our solemn protest against a system of policy which we believe, nay, which we know, whatever may be its first aspect, must of necessity in its final results be unfavorable even to the security of British subjects resident abroad, which it professes so much to study, unfavorable to the dignity of the country which the motion of the honorable and learned member asserts it preserves, and equally unfavorable to that other great and sacred subject which also it suggests to our recollection, the maintenance of peace with the nations of the world. I have thought it well to give this long quotation from the speech, partly because of its eloquence, its strength, and its beauty, but still more because it marks a memorable step in the progress of the orator, and shows alike the reason for his great triumphs, and the reason, too, for some of his passing defeats. Nothing could be in broader contrast than the whole purpose of Lord Palmerston's speech and the whole purpose of the speech of Mr. Gladstone. Lord Palmerston appealed to certain national passions which have always, in their inspiration, a certain element of selfishness and egotism and even of vulgarity. Gladstone addressed himself to the conscience and to the hearts of men. He had not, at that time, attained to anything like the supreme command over the Liberal Party in the House of Commons and over his countrymen out of doors, which it has since been his triumph to exercise again and again with success. As we shall see in the course of this narrative, Mr. Gladstone succeeded many times in prevailing upon England to do some great act of justice simply because it was just. More than a quarter of a century has gone by since John Bright declared in tones of melancholy conviction that the House of Commons had done many things which were just, but never anything merely because it was just. Mr. Gladstone later on proved that a better order of things might be attained. He induced the House of Commons to do many things for no other reason than because they were just. 
the debate which I have been describing was illumined by many powerful and brilliant speeches, the speech of Mr. Cobden, of Lord John Russell, of Mr. Disraeli, and of Mr. Coburn, afterwards Sir Alexander Coburn, Lord Chief Justice of England. But the one speech of which it seems to me history will take most account is the speech of Mr. Gladstone. It was not merely a great effort of reason and of eloquence. It marked an era. It revealed a man. It foreshadowed a life's policy. That very day, for the debate lasted until four o'clock in the morning, was marked by a great national calamity. Sir Robert Peel, riding up Constitution Hill by the railings of the Green Park, met with a fatal accident. His horse threw Sir Robert and then fell upon him. Sir Robert was taken to his home, but could hardly be said to have rallied for a moment. He died on the 2nd of July in his 63rd year. By his death, Gladstone lost the leader and patron and friend on whom he had endeavored to mold his own political character. Probably, outside Sir Robert Peel's own family, no one felt the loss more keenly than Gladstone did. It is the custom in both Houses of Parliament to publicly allude to the loss of some great member of either chamber. Mr. Gladstone delivered a beautiful and touching speech in the House of Commons on the evening of the 3rd of July, in which he told of the profound disappointment which had filled the country because of the premature close of such a life. I call it, he said, the premature death of Sir Robert Peel, for although he has died full of years and full of honors, yet it is a death that in human eyes is premature because we had fondly hoped that in whatever position providence might assign to him, by the weight of his ability, by the splendor of his talents, and by the purity of his virtues, he might still have been spared to render us most essential services. Then he quoted some especially appropriate lines from Sir Walter Scott's poem Marmion. Now is the stately column broke. The beacon light is quenched in smoke. The trumpet's silver voice is still, the warder silent on the hill. Not every one of Gladstone's audience understood at first the exquisite appropriateness of these lines. They occur indeed in Marmion, but they are lines on the death of William Pitt and are in the introduction to the poem. The death of Sir Robert Peel had one important effect among ever so many others. It left Mr. Gladstone free to follow whatever political course his principles might dictate. The Peelite party, so-called, dissolved, never as such to coalesce again. It is impossible to suppose that the influence of such a man as Robert Peel would not have had some effect on Mr. Gladstone's individual action, and we do not know whether Peel with all his willingness to advance into new ideas, 
might have proved in his later years such a fearless advocate of reform as Mr. Gladstone showed himself to be. From this time forward, we shall see that Mr. Gladstone shapes for himself the course of his political career. He was always a splendid second, a superb champion, but now for the first time men look to him for leadership, and the day is not far distant when he is to be recognized, whether in or out of office, as the foremost man in the House of Commons. Poor little Don Pacifico ought to be remembered kindly by English history for the mere fact that his preposterous claims gave Mr. Gladstone an opportunity of delivering his reply to Lord Palmerston and claiming for England her sacred right to a policy of justice and of mercy. Thomas More, the Irish poet, spoke of Fox as one on whose burning tongue truth, peace, and freedom hung. I have said in the House of Commons that the words would apply even more completely to Gladstone. End of chapter 10